Welcome to the 22nd episode of Spurbs Herbs. Thank you very much. Today we have an interesting herb. It's different. It's it's definitely on the not on the super uh, frequently used herbal side of things. Uh, I was actually kind of surprised. I used three main textbooks and only one of them had a, a real legitimate entry on this, which I love because that means this is an obscure herb and I get to learn a lot about obscure herbs and that's what we're doing today. Um, today we're going to be talking about zi, zi, su, gong, perilla, collis, or perilla stem. Now, notice I spelled, I, I was kind of talking zi, su, gong a little bit strange. I'm using the Chinese tone marks because we're going to find that's kind of an important thing we're going to go over today. Not that we're talking about tone marks, but there's a word uh, that we're going to talk about today that has very different tone marks. So this should be a really interesting episode of Spurbs Herbs. I appreciate you guys joining us and uh, let's get into it. So, uh, if you are an acupuncturist, this podcast, as well as others, are approved for California Acupuncture Board Continuing Education Units and NCCOM, or National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine, professional development activities at a very reasonable cost. Please check us out at www.integrativemedicinecouncil.org. Also, I have written a couple of books, including Integrative Pharmacology, Combining Modern Pharmacology with Integrative Medicine, and Playing the Game, a step-by-step -step guide to accepting insurance as an acupuncturist. Both of these are available at the shop on www.spurbsherbs.com. I do have another book that's in the, in the, in the pocket, and I am uh, just kind of figuring out exactly how I want to get it published. Uh, but that is ready to go. Probably needs a little editing. But other than that, I've re-edited it a lot. But I need an outside editor. Uh, but other than that, that's ready to go. So that keep an eye on that, in ear out for that one as well. So all right. So today, as a little something different. Uh, remember, we always do something a little bit different on Spurbs Herbs. I thought we were gonna we would get into this sort of idea. We've talked about herbs regulating chi or moving chi or something along those lines in the past. I thought we'd do a little bit deeper dive into that and actually into some of the, the Chinese terms that are involved in this because there are subtleties there. And I'll be honest with you, as as someone who was, was you know, trained in the United States, I have tried to kind of learn these, these words. I, I do speak, as you guys know, a little bit of poor Chinese. Um, but so I'm, I'm fascinated in the original Chinese herbs thought I had a bit of a handle on it, found out I did not. So this is really exciting. We get to talk about some of the terminology around this as well as explaining some important concepts. And, and so that's what we're going to do next. And with the, the title of Qi Constraint, Depression, Stagnation, let's go. So this week's herb is in the category of herbs that regulate Qi. And this is a very common term, regulating Qi in, in Chinese medicine. And this idea of regulating Qi is predicated on the idea of the qi not moving or not moving properly. Uh, I, I, and so that's what we're kind of getting into, uh, and that's why we're, we're talking about it today. I am kind of sidestepping the entire explanation of qi right now. I have that coming up. I think I have it penciled in for episode 25, so a few more episodes, and we'll have a big thing about 
what is qi, which I think is really important. I uh, found some good materials on it today while I was uh, look, researching this. But for now, I'm not going to get into what qi is or any of that sort of stuff, but let's assume it exists and is not moving properly. That's the bottom line that's happening here. Your herbs in this category function to move the sluggish or stuck qi, and that's really what we're talking about here. Of course, there are manifestations of this improperly moving qi that present as signs and symptoms. This is one of the disease states of Chinese medicine, or, or what we like to call zheng, or patterns in Chinese medicine. And so one of those patterns is the qi is not moving properly. So we're going to get into that. And it has some very specific signs and symptoms. There are some general ones, which I'm going to list for you right now. But there are also some, some that are very specific to when it affects specific areas of the body or organs of the body. So these signs and symptoms, general signs and symptoms, can include distension or bloating, uh, pain. Pain, pain, pain is a big thing. We, one of the things in Chinese medicine we say that when something isn't moving properly, whatever that is, there can be pain. And so qi uh, not moving properly can cause pain. Irritability, mood swings. There's a lot of emotion, psycho-emotional stuff on this list. Frequent sighing. Have you ever noticed, you know, sometimes people will just go, and they'll do that frequently. That is a very clear sign that there's some qi constraint, depression, stagnation happening. And so... Uh, keep an eye on that. And then, you know, you catch it in yourself. You know, there are just times when I just do that and I go, oh, must have some liver chi going on. Liver chi stagnation. So also some other signs include a gloomy feeling or a mental depression. We're going to find that depression is an important word here. A wiry pulse. So remember in Chinese medicine, we look at the pulse and tongue for whether there are disease states or patterns, uh, conditions happening. And a wiry pulse is very closely associated with qi constraint, depression, stagnation. I'm going to make that narrower as we go along, but for now, that's what we're talking about. So wiry pulse is important. And a wiry pulse is often described as, um, as if the pulse were a wire being pulled on either side, so, and it hits all three fingers at the same time. So uh, that's, that's a wiry pulse. It can also mean other things like pain, but as I said, pain is stagnation. So you know, is that really a difference? And finally, the sides of the tongue may be either normal or slightly red. Uh, so those are all different signs and symptoms of this. There are, as I mentioned, additional signs and symptoms um, based on where the qi stagnation may actually be. And we'll talk a little bit about that, probably not get too much into signs and symptoms. Uh, we'll do that on individual herbs in the future probably, but we have that to, to look at. So... The most common causes of qi stagnation is emotional strain, regular eating, excessive physical work, and or lack of exercise. While all emotions may contribute to stagnation of qi, anger, frustration, worry, and pensiveness, as well as resentment, are the most common emotions that will cause stagnant qi. And it is these emotions that are really important. Like I said, that depression earlier, emotions in general are very important in this whole topic today. So keep that in mind. You know, Chinese medicine says it's okay. You, you want to feel emotions. That's important to feel emotions. That's human to feel emotions. But when they get out of whack, um, that's a technical term from you know, Sperb's vocabulary. Um, no. <laughs> If they, get out, if they get out of control, then they can cause 
conditions and disease states and patterns and things along those lines. So the, the liver is the most common organ affected by qi stagnation, though other organs may also be affected. This is because one of the liver's role is to actually promote the smooth flow of qi. So if the qi is not flowing smoothly, either the liver is not doing its job properly or the fact that it's not moving slowly is affecting the liver and it, certain, it can become a chicken and egg thing. Is it not moving because the liver isn't doing its job or is the liver not doing its job because the qi isn't flowing sort of thing. So there's, there's a little bit of that, that but the liver is always going to be involved with qi with flow. And all that we just discussed comes from a major, at least in English, foundational textbook of Chinese medicine. The author doesn't always discuss the Chinese words involved in his translations, interpretations, and there could be subtleties in those translations. He's, this is Machiocha, anyone who's studied Chinese medicine knows um, the name Machiocha, and he's wonderful. I've met him, he was a, a, student, a, a, a student, a teacher of mine, and uh, for, in my doctoral program. And so really, really smart, nice guy. Um, and his later books, as he did revisions, he got a lot better at including Chinese terms in what he was discussing. But when it kind of comes to this area, he never kind of got there. And I kind of understand why now after going through and, and doing a setup. And we'll talk about that at the end. So um, there are several, uh, several words involved with the concept of the qi not moving properly. I'm being specifically nonspecific here. Um, so the qi doesn't move properly, and then there are Chinese words that help explain that. And these words include zhi, yu, bushu, and possibly shirt. So we're going to talk about all these words and many more. That is really important. So let's discuss them. Let's start that process. The first word on the list is zhi. Uh, this is often translated as stagnant, stasis, or sluggish. The Practical Dictionary of Chinese Medicine, which has kind of become a, a, a standard dictionary, especially for some authors. Uh, a lot of publishers will say that their, the wor their works need to be in alignment with the Practical Dictionary of Chinese Medicine. I don't always agree with the choices that are made in the Practical Dictionary of Chinese Medicine. Some of them make fairly straightforward, simple terms into um, much more complicated technical terms. But... I love the precision of it, and I think it's really important. I think it's a huge step forward in our profession that we have a place where we have a common terminology. And, and the reason why this is an issue is because we're translating Chinese terms, and there's always a little leeway when you translate from one language to another, and this makes it a much more technical um, equation in the process. And I think that makes our medicine and our understanding of our medicine at least from an English side of things, much more precise and easier to communicate and understand. So I think this is really important. It came out in 1998, so it's, it's a little over 20 years old. And it, it's written by, by two gentlemen who are, are uh, really important in, in foundational, lots of foundational books as well, as uh, in addition to the Practical Dictionary of Chinese Medicine. So uh, Wiseman and Ye are their, their names. So the Practical Dictionary of Chinese Medicine defines the term zhi as sluggishness of movement, particularly of qi and the food. So it can refer to food stagnation, and that is a, a condition in Chinese medicine, food stagnation. But we often are thinking in terms of um, qi stagnation in this case. 
um, Scheid, Volker Scheid is another author in our, in our uh, things. And he is, he's really an amazing guy. He's not only an, an acupuncturist, but he's a scholar of, of the Chinese language and Chinese history. And that's interesting because there's, there are other really good scholars of Chinese medical history, but they don't, they're not Chinese medical practitioners. So um, uh, Dr. Scheid, I believe it's Dr. Scheid, brings in a very interesting perspective as being an acupuncturist and being a historian. And he wrote an article in 2013 talking about some of these words that we're, gonna, we're, we're talking about here. And he agrees with this translation of jur as, as sluggishness of movement, particularly of qi and the food, and contrasts it with, contrasts it with our next word, yu. So jur, just so you know, is Z-H-I, and it has the fourth tone mark, so it's jur as the fourth tone mark. And this new word, yu, is Y-U, uh, and again, it's fourth tone mark, so the fourth tone mark goes down sharply, so yu. Uh, U is translated as stagnation, and you'll see why in a minute, why I'm making such a big deal about this. So U is translated as stagnation, depression, blockage, or constraint. So I've often heard this term as depression, uh, and we'll see why in just a sec. Um, Scheid, Volker Scheid prefers the translation of constraint. So he, in this article, 2013 article, he talks about it and translates it as constraint, and I think that is a common translation. But the Practical Dictionary uh, translates this as depression, and I think that term is, is, has gotten some good traction in Chinese medicine. And at first, when I, when I hear this word, when I first heard this word in, in our field, starting to, to catch on a little bit, I started saying, oh, well, that's sort of a weird word, and it doesn't quite fit. You know, I think of it as a, as a mood disturbance. You know, you're depressed, you have depression. Um, uh, and, and yet some of my elders would say, no, 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 it's, an it's a good translation of this. Let's, let's play with this. So um, it, it actually is, as, I, as I've explored it over the years, and I like the word depression. I understand Scheid's penchant for constraint, which I think is, a, is a, um, just as accurate, but maybe not as nuanced a word as, as depression would be in this case. So let's see what the practical dictionary, how that defines depression or this word you. They define this as stagnation, so again, similar to jur, um, reduced activity. In physiology, depression refers either to depressed qi dynamic, frustrated physiological activity, in other words, it's not flowing the way it should be, or to flow stoppage due to congestion. The term also describes inhibition of normal emotional activity, expressing itself in the form of oppression, frustration, and irascibility, in practice, depression is usually qi stagnation due to affect damage or mood damage, damage from those emotions we talked about earlier, and is therefore more restricted in meaning than qi stagnation, jir, which may be due to other causes. So there we have some really good differentials to, to hang our hat on. So this does, this, this word does imply mood, that there is some sort of emotional aspect to the qi depression or the qi stagnation that jur doesn't add in that nuance. So again, by exploring these words, we get to kind of understand these concepts a little bit more. And, and, and you might be sitting there going, well, why does mood get into all this? Because in Chinese medicine, we're holistic. We say that physical aspects will affect emotional aspects and spiritual aspects and 
and all sorts of things. And so we have to look at the body as a whole, and so these all play a role together. So looking at this definition of you, you seems to pertain more to emotional aspects and probably liver chi because the liver is very, is, is the, the heart is called the emperor of, of emotions and every emotion affects the heart. But the liver, because it is in charge of moving chi, every emotion can affect that movement of chi. And we, we describe motions, uh, you know, when we describe our, our, um, our emotions, we talk about this stagnates chi or that scatters chi. Uh, so, for example, fright scatters chi. And so all of that affects the, m the movement of chi, so all emotions will affect liver. And so that's why we're saying that here. And Shai tends to agree with this, stating to Chinese speakers today, constraint or yu thus can refer to both the emotional and physical feelings of blockage that are common symptoms of emotion-related, are a common symptom of emotion-related disorders. So they... There's this concept, so we have to keep in mind that when we're talking about you, we're also talking about emotions. And so there is a constraint of chi, there is a jur, but it also is affecting our emotions at some level. So bu shu, I, I should make that again, bu shu, uh, that's fourth tone and, and first tone. According to the practical dictionary, this term is translated as constrained. And it, it means normally free-flowing actions of particular organs are constrained and unable to do their job. So, for example, constrained liver chi or gan chi bu shu is, is defined as deficiency of the liver's free-coursing action, usually caused by affect mind binding depression. So affect mind. So affect is mood, emotions, and, and the mind is in charge of that and, and, and is an aspect of that. So it, it's binding the emotions and especially depression in this, in this circumstance. It is treated by coursing the liver and resolving depression. So now this depression that we're talking about is that depression we were talking about with you. Um, so that is what we're, because it's the same dictionary, it's talking about the same thing. So this is... Uh, when you affects the liver, then we have constrained liver chi. Ergon chi bu shu. Constrained, sp constrained spleen chi or pi chi bu shu. Non-movement is defined as non-movement of spleen chi caused by impaired liver-free coursing, dampness encumbering spleen yang, or congestion of food. So this is a little bit more... Uh, it's not as specific as the constrained liver chi um, because it has several different reasons for it. We have if the liver isn't moving properly, you can have this constrained spleen chi. If there's dampness encumbering spleen yang, so that's a whole other concept, spleen yang, but that's the warmth of the body, the movement of the body. And damp dampness is this sort of heavy, um, damp feeling that happens. So dampness can kind of encumber the spleen yang so it can't move and brighten and warm the rest of the body. And of course, excessive or improper congestion, uh, congestion of food. So ingestion of food can cause congestion of food. And all of this can lead to constrained spleen chi or this bu shu of the spleen. In general, bu shu appears to be more specific application of jur and yu 
referring to the end pattern affecting a specific organ rather than a disease process. And when we're talking about stagnation or depression, this is what is happening to the chi, but it isn't, and, and you have symptoms because of that, but it isn't affecting an organ yet. It's not an end pattern yet. And that's where the bushu kind of comes in is it a, when an organ is constrained, that's when we're gonna have this condition. So then we also have another term, sure. Um, sure, which is going to be second tone, is translated by the practical dictionary as repletion, meaning the opposite of vacuity. That is the entire definition of it. But then it goes on and says a repletion pattern is any condition in which the presence of evil is resisted by the body. So at, at first blush, this may not seem to pertain to what we've been talking about, um, but it specifically says it can, it can refer to static blood or blood not moving. But at least in my training was often confused with the idea of jur and yu. Like the first Chinese word that I read in this whole, th I, that I learned in this whole thing was sure. And that to me meant repletion and also stagnation. And that's not true. Um, this doesn't necessarily refer to stagnation. But it's probably due to the fact that often stagnation and depression are associated with replete conditions. But you can have those patterns in vacuity conditions as well, and that would be kind of considered a mixed pattern. But you can have vacuity not allowing the free flow. In other words, there's not enough chi to actually move properly, and that can cause stagnation. So you can have a vacuity stagnation happen. But often um, when we see that happen, we think of it in terms of little pockets of repletion. So often stagnation is considered uh, a replete condition, but not always. And so this idea of using this term sure or repletion as stagnation is probably not an appropriate way to use this term. So that's, that's one of the things I learned while going through this process. And that brings up to us to another term, and this is why I was emphasizing the tone marks. This tone, this is also Y-U, but this one is first tone rather than fourth tone. So instead of U, this is U, excuse me, this is U, that is first tone. So just to throw in another very confusing wrench into the works, we have another term, U. This sounds like the same term we were using earlier, but it is a completely different word if you I, I do have the graphics. If you see the graphics, the ideograms, they are different. This is a different Chinese word, and it has a different tone mark. So it's very different in that context. So the practical dictionary has two very similar definitions. It says you means sluggishness or cessation of movement, specifically of the blood. And number two is static blood. So this is a term, so you, which is, Qi Yu is depression of Qi and, and, and involving something with mood. This Yu is about the blood and it is basically stagnation of the blood. And so you, can, you wouldn't say Qi Yu, you would say Qi Yu um, for that other word that we already talked about. So that's just part of the confusing, potential confusing nature of, of Chinese language um, and, and, and why it's really important to know your tone marks. You know, it's one of those things as an English speaker, I'm really bad at remembering all the tone marks, but they really are totally different words uh, without those tone marks. And so it's important to have those in, in, uh, in 
uh, there. And if you're not familiar with it, there are really there are four uh, tone marks and then a, what's known as a neuter tone, which is no tone marks. So four or five, depending on how you want to count them. And so that's what we're talking about here. So youth, fourth tone, is about is translated as depression uh, or constraint, as Volker Scheid would. And then you is this other term that means stasis, really, or, or and, and is only refers to blood. So it's blood stagnation or blood stasis. So good, another differential there. All right. Well, I come out of this with a better understanding of the different Chinese terms, and I feel they are distinct terms, but not necessarily in the way I thought. Zhi seems to be a more general term for stagnation, applicable especially to qi and food. Yu, that's fourth tone, Yu, appears to be slightly more specific term involving constraint or depression of qi, especially in the presence of psycho-emotional aspects. Bu, Xu, or constrained, seems to be even more specific term describing what happens when qi or other aspects become constrained in a specific organ, usually the spleen or liver. Sure, does not necessarily mean does not necessarily mean any stagnation or sluggishness, but fullness, which lends itself to stagnation, but is not the same thing. And finally, you only refers to blood and not qi. There are many methods and approaches for treating these various conditions in the derivatives, and there are very specific technical terms for these methods. Uh, and that's a whole other thing we can get into. You know, how do you deal with constrained qi versus depressed qi and where does terminology run that? We're not going to do that today, um, but there is that whole aspect of this in the, to look at. In Chinese herb herbology, one of the most important categories of herbs for treating these types of conditions is herbs that regulate qi. In this context, regulate qi means to move qi or make it less stagnant or sluggish. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to today's herb, which is a member of this category. So today we're going to be talking about Zisu Gung or Perilla Stem. And let's get into it. So this belongs to the family of Labiate, uh, uh, which if you're looking at it, it's a little bit more obvious. It's Labiate, and it actually means lips. You know, Labia means lips. Uh, so Labiate uh, is the family for this. And, and we're going to see that may or may not be exactly right. Uh, species is specifically is Perilla fruticens, uh, L. Brit. And I'm still, I need to figure out what that L. Brit means. I'm going to do a, uh, something different on that because I'm, I'm seeing this a lot as I go through these herbs. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it's part of the species nomenclature. The medicinal part uh, includes the stem. That's it, just the stem. Other parts are used as Chinese herbs and are arguably, I, I don't think, strong argument, I think it very much is more important medicinal substances. So in particular, these include the leaf and seeds. Uh, so we have zisu zi uh, for the seeds and zisu ye for the leaf. And the English translation of zisu gung is perilla stem. So zisu is perilla and gung means stem. So that's where this comes from. There are other names for this as well, including basilic japones, uh, beefsteak plant, Entita nankinensis, Japanese basil, Japanese melissa, shisho, shiso, wild coleus, and in Japanese shisoko, and in Korean uh, jazogyong, as well as in Chinese another 
term for this is just sugung, so you can drop the z, it just becomes sugung. Uh, so all this is really important. And some of these are interesting. If you're familiar with shiso, uh, the, the leaf, God, it, 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 I'm looking forward to talking about the leaf after this one, um, is a whole other thing. You're, you're familiar with this plant, even if you're not familiar with this plant. If you've ever had sushi, you're kind of familiar with that. I'm going to leave that hanging for when I actually talk about the leaf. But you can ask me questions and I can answer them later. Uh, so Bensky, remember, I have three major uh, texts that I look at, as well as others. I, I look at a lot of different sources, um, but three uh, of the, the main ones. Uh, and one of those is Bensky and his team, Bensky et al. And he says, uh, that team says the dosage is 4.5 to 9 grams uh, per day, and one should not cook for a long time. So whenever we see that, when it shouldn't cook for a long time, it, it, it really is referring to the idea that there are volatile oils here, and if you cook it for a long time, and, and those are medicinal in, in action, if you cook it for a long time, those volatile oils will, will cook off and it will not be effective as an herb. So um, generally when we see that, we throw it in at the very last minute. You know, we, If we're decocting it, we'll have it softly boiling, we'll turn off the, the burner and then add this herb at the very last bit. So it does get the warmth in the boiling water, but only not extensively at all. So let's talk about this uh, Labiate uh, family. I do not pronounce Latin, so please excuse my pronunciation there. So Labiate is also known as the Lamiaceae family. That's why I said it may, it may not be the right family. It includes flowering plants commonly known as the mint, bed nettle, or sage family. Generally, Lamiaceae is considered the more correct name, though Labiate is a correct alternative. So, you know, when we, we look at this, we see there's often when we look at families and genera and, and all these different ways we break down uh, plants and animals, um, it's, it's a lot of guesswork. You're looking at morphology. You're looking at what something looks like and saying, okay, I think it belongs to this family. It has these aspects that are similar, and so they belong over here. But then... Lately, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years, we've been able to do genetic testing on these, and we realize they're not at all associated with this, and they're over there, and we need to combine these. And, it, and so there's a lot of action and, and um, sometimes not a lot of clarity as to which family or genera or, or where uh, plants and animals fall into. So we see some, a lot of different movement in this, and that's where this comes up. That's why there's a, it, it might be a little confusing. There's two different families, though they're really the same family. They're just called different things. So. Uh, this family does include many aromatic culinary and medicinal herbs, including basil. We already mentioned Japanese basil, and that's what this herb is. But normal basil, Italian basil, if you would, I shouldn't say normal, Italian basil is also in this family. Mint is in this family. Rosemary, sage, uh, savory marjoram, oregano, hyssop, thyme, lavender, and then some medicinal herbs, salvia, catnip, oriental motherwort, and and of course, this plant, Prilla, are all part of this family. So really kind of a very tasty, as you can tell uh, with all this, and also very, very uh, uh, aromatic, a lot of aromatics, and, and very medicinal. So an important family of, of plants. There are approximately 236 genera uh, and up to 7,500 species. So if you're a little confused between genera and species, remember this was Prilla frutisensis, Frutisense, Frutisense, uh, Perilla Frutisense. That Perilla is the genera, 
and then the more specific species is the fruit ascends. So think of it as, you know, you keep getting more and more specific. So that's why there's a lot more species than genera, because often there are many species in a given genera. And there's lots of distinguishing factors. One of the things I, I love about learning about these families and everything is you start to learn, I'm like, okay, well, you would think a family would be very similar, you know, like they would have similar plants. But no, sometimes they're there are vines and there are trees and there are shrubs all in one family. And so I don't usually throw that out there, but it does look like flowers are usually bisexual in this family, uh, which I'm not going to get into the biology of, of flowers right now, but that is an important distinction. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it for the Vabayate family. Back to Zisugung. So the category of this herb, as we've mentioned already, according to Bensky and his team, is an herb that regulates the chi. Chenichen does mention this herb, um, but does not put it in a category. It actually has it as a little note at the end, I think, of the, the seed, the perilla seed uh, that it talks about. And, and, and what's interesting is I said, you know, the seed, the leaf, and the stem are all herbs, and they're all in totally different categories. They have completely different effects. And so it's, it's interesting that we see that. So the fact that Chen and Chen doesn't put it in a specific category does not mean I can, we, we can make the assumptions in the same category that it, it's been the seed, which it isn't true. Uh, Bensky also says, and his team say, say it is acrid, sweet, and slightly warm. And then there's the lung, spleen, and stomach. So just take a pause in there. So, you know, that's an interesting thing. It enters the lung, spleen, and stomach. So remember we said these are chi regulating nerves, and we usually think of chi being stagnant and affecting the liver in some aspects. So the fact that this does not enter the liver is a really interesting fact about this herb. And, is, and, and I think, you know, I didn't go through them all, but I think it's a rarity in this, in this category of formulas that it does not enter the liver. Uh, Bensky goes on and says the original source for this herb is miscellaneous records of famous physicians or the Mingye Bie Lu, written, excuse me, written around 500 CE. So this is a little bit newer herb. Um, you know, we often in, in our herbs, we talk about it being uh, in the Shenang Ben Jing or the Divine Farmer's uh, um, Materia Medica. Uh, and that's the first existing er, a book on individual herbs. So this definitely is written about later on, about 300 years after that. So good quality of Zisugung, according to Bensky, consists of purplish-brown or purplish-black stems with an aromatic fragrance. So that aromatic, again, comes in. There's smells to this. Zhao and Chen, which is a book specifically on determining high-quality herbs. It's, it's about identifying herbs. It's an herb-identifying book, so it's a great book. It says, superior grade is aromatic and has purplish-brown outer skin. It had pictures and a little bit more detail, but nothing that would be really useful uh, in this context here. Uh, I just didn't want to short-shift them that that's the only thing they said. There, there was more to it but nothing that was um, super specific. One of the things they did say about the stem is that it's hollow in the inside, inside and uh, you can see that in a cross section. So what does this herb do? What are the Chinese medical actions? So according to Bensky, 
Uh, Zisugang has a couple Chinese medical actions, only two. It expands the chest and benefits the diaphragm. Remember, it enters the lungs, so it makes sense that it does these things. It expands the chest and benefits the diaphragm. And it calms the fetus and stops vomiting. So the spleen stomach is our digestive thing, so we can, that can be the vomiting aspect. But the calm the fetus is an interesting, very interesting aspect of this herb, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a little bit more in just a minute. Zhao and Chen, that, that herb identification book that I was talking about earlier, is similar, saying it rectifies qi. So rectify is another term we will sometimes use instead of regulate. It means it puts it in its proper place or movement in this, in this uh, context. Expands the center, relieves pain, and calms the fetus. So it does definitely hit that calm the fetus. But it also relieves pain. That's an interesting aspect of this. And again, it, it speaks to if pain is caused by stagnation and this is moving stagnation, then pain will be relieved. And finally, Chen Chen agrees, saying it regulates qi and expands the chest. Again, remember, they did not have, the, that was it. They had like one line on this herb um, and that was about it. It wasn't a full entry with, with the Chen Chen book, but it's definitely in uh, the same context of these other two books, except it doesn't mention calming the fetus. So we like to talk about Western uses of, of herbs. This herb is used almost exclusively as a Chinese herb. There were no, uh, none that I could, I could easily find about Western usage of this herb. Um, WebMD has several uses of this herb, but does not distinguish between leaf, stem, or seeds. So take that in, in context, and it says it's good for canker sores, airway illnesses, which would be in line with, with the Chinese medical aspects of this, and stomach issues, which could also be, because it enters the spleen stomach, could also be in line with, with what we're talking about here as well. So let's talk about some commentary that was in Bensky. Uh, it discusses some interesting aspects of this herb. This herb promotes the flow of qi, eases the middle, harmonizes the stomach, stops nausea, and calms the fetus in pregnancy. It is best for those who are weak or debilitated. So again, this is an interesting aspect of this. Usually, a lot of the herbs that are in, in, the, in the, um, this category of herbs are for people who are a little bit more replete, full, you know, stronger. So this is interesting that it's, it's useful for weak or debilitated patients. According to the meaning of Materia Medica, as translated by Bensky and his team, perilla has an intensely aromatic chi, and the stalks are empty inside, which al thereby allows it to thoroughly rise and descend the chi to rise, the herb to rise and descend and bring in the chi with it. In the middle, it opens the chest and diaphragm, awakens the spleen and stomach, disseminates and transforms the mucus, and releases constrained clumps in order to ease qi stagnation. Again, similar. Um, I think the, the interesting word here is thin mucus. That's, that's new to what we're doing, and, and it actually is uh, a part of, this, of the, the use of the service, thin mucus. So keep that in mind. We have a little bit more on that. They also translated a passage from Chen Shi Duo, and he said this herb is a wind herb, which excels at calming the liver. 
when earth is restrained. So again, they're, they're talking about the liver, even though the liver is not really on that list of, of, of uh, meridian or organs entered. But remember, there's controversy over this. Some other texts might say this is a liver herb, but this text did not. So it's a wind herb that which excels at calming the liver. When earth is restrained by liver, so earth is spleen and stomach, the usual result is diarrhea. If liver wood, that's the, the element of the liver, if liver wood is not calmed, the spleen earth does not obtain nourishment. Not to mention that because it is acrid and warm, acridity or spiciness can mobilize dampness while warmth can expel cold. There's no reason to prohibit it for people with cold spleen and stomach. In fact, it is beneficial. How could it cause loose stools or diarrhea? However, its acrid aroma can disperse the true chi. Short-term use is no problem. Only long-term use can harm. This is a warning of which one should be aware. In other words, what they're saying here is short-term use, you know, that for expelling cold and for dampness is going to help diarrhea, won't cause diarrhea. But if you do take a long-term, then the chi will be dispersed and you won't be able to uh, process food properly and you will have diarrhea. So this is uh, saying basically don't use this long-term. There are several different forms of zisu gung. If the stalks are collected in the summer just after flowering, it is known as tender perilla stalks or nun su gung. If collected in autumn after the seeds have matured, they are called old perilla stalks or lao su gong. Homegrown is known as household perilla stalks or jia uh, su gong. Generally, the tender perilla stalks are considered superior. However, in certain locales, old perilla stalks are preferred, especially for calming the fetus in pregnancy. As mentioned earlier, the seeds... Oh, let's talk about some comparisons with other herbs. So as mentioned earlier, the seeds and leaves of this plant are also medicinal herbs. These differences are as follows, according to Bensky and his team. The leaves, zisu ye, are light and lifting, and so are used for externally contracted wind cold, dispersing and smoothing lung chi closure, disseminating and unblocking the muscle layer and exterior, draining wind, and transforming the pathogen in a most agile fashion. So this is often used in um, for external attacks. So that's what it's saying. It's like it, it pushes the pathogen. It works on the exterior. Uh, and that's where that's coming from. The other interesting aspect of this is that it is, in, and I'm going to say that thing that I foreshadowed earlier, um, the leaves are actually one of the, the interesting aspects of it. It is used for seafood poisoning. And so often used in sushi, not just it can be wrapped up in a sushi roll, but it's almost always on the side. And if you've ever had like store-bought sushi where they have that little green plastic piece in there, that little green plastic piece is supposed to be a representation of zisuye, this leaf. And the idea is that in a high quality uh, you know, sushi restaurant, you don't need this. And a okay quality sushi restaurant, they would give you some zisuye probably. And that is to ward off any potential seafood poisoning of eating the raw fish. And so that plastic piece is a function of that. And so this perilla leaf is actually supposed to be served with sushi. So when we move on to the stalks, which is really what we're talking about here, the stems, 
The stalks are firm in texture, and although they are hollow inside, close to the roots, they are large, rich, and thick. The largest close to an inch in diameter. They are accordingly used to open and drain internal chi, relieve clumping, stop pain, direct rebellious chi downwards. So that's a different aspect, but that again helps digestion. Calm wheezing, so that's the lung aspect. Unbind the stomach and awaken the spleen and are particularly important in the treatment of leg chi. Talk about that in just a second. Thus, the aim is quite different from that of opening and draining externally contracted disorders. So the this Uye is about opening and draining externally contracted disorder. These, this stem, these stalks are not that way at all. The leg chi or jiao chi is a pattern of numbness, pain, limpness, and other potential signs of the leg caused by damp and wind. So this is good for leg chi. Finally, the seeds, zi su zi, are slippery, easing, and go straight down, directing chi downward reducing phlegm, alleviating cough, and moistening the lungs. So this could, that would go to the lungs as well. Um, but it has a different, totally different aspect, again, from the leaf or the, the stem. They also state that Perella collis, this ugang, is this one, is the herb of choice for treating chi stagnation in the chest and abdomen during pregnancy. So that's the reason, real reason why you would use this as, as compared with any other herb out there if someone has chi stagnation in the chest and abdomen during pregnancy, this is your herb. Let's talk about some combinations. There are several combinations of this herb with other herbs. For leg chi, the mirror of medicines, a, a, a text, recommends combining with Angelica pubicentis radix or du huo and attractive lotus rhizoma zong chu. In rectification of the meaning of materia medica, another text, they recommend Ariasei semen or Bing Ling. This is, um, I always think about it. I always know when I'm writing it and I always forget about it. Uh, beetle nut, it's, it's beetle nut, Bing Ling, is the recommended combination. For middle burner chi blockage caused by the liver accosting the spleen, add Siperia rhizoma of Shang Fu. Zisu Gung harmonizes the spleen chi while Shang Fu relieves the liver chi constraint. This combination is also quite good for morning sickness. Platycote radix or jay gong raises by nature and enters the lung while zisu gong directs downward and besides entering the lung channel to ease the chest and diaphragm also enters the spleen to ease the middle burner and ensure the smooth flow of its chi. This pair contains one herb that raises and one that directs chi downward thus restoring the normal chi dynamic and relieving constraint in the upper and central areas of the body. We like this. We like these opposites because it allows the body to kind of do what it needs to do. The combination excels, this combination excels at opening upper burner constraint and unblocking stagnation and smoothing and disseminating the flow of lung chi to alleviate cough. And that, oh, we have a little bit more. Is therefore frequently used when cough, wheezing, and or stifling sensation in the chest and diaphragm are due to lung chi constraint. Furthermore, because of their chi regulating action, this pair of herbs is often used with good results when the spleen and stomach chi is constrained, leading to focal distension of the epigastrium, loss of taste for food, nausea, and reflux. Because the actions in nature of both herbs are relatively gentle, they are appropriate individually and as a pair for elderly, deficient, or pregnant 
patient. So it's an interesting combination of verbs here. All right, let's get into the contents of this herb. This herb contains many volatile, uh, uh, volatile oils, including perilla ketone. And this is, according uh, to uh, Badal, which is a pharmacognosy textbook, as well as Greenwald, which is a safety textbook, um, is, is, described, is described a gastrointestinal prokinetic effect. So in other words, it increases peristalsis. So if you have sluggish digest, digestion, then this herb, uh, this, this particular, not the herb, but this particular volatile oil, perilla ketone, can be helpful for that. And um, Grunewald says it's possibly an anti, has anti-tumor properties as well. So it might be anti-cancer, anti-tumor. Uh, other, other volatile oils include perilene, uh, egomacatone. Again, you have to, these are interesting scientific words. Isoegomacatone, ethylenolinate, and linolenic acid. It also includes beta-cytosterol, a terpenoid that helps prostate problems as well as having anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, and immune-strengthening effects. So we start to see why it might be useful. But again, not a common herb, not well-researched, so there's a lot more research to do on a lot of this stuff. In addition, there are, this is going to be fun, uh, rosemarinic acid, uh, melanyl schisosin, uh, cyanidine 3 o cafe oil glucoside 5 o glucoside cyanine schisonine uh, uh, melanyl schisonine 2 hexa non uran anisole uh, caryophylline and curlone also appear to be present in the stems ah, got through it mouth mungling it way too much <laughs> So let's talk about the science of this herb. Uh, again, this is an obscure herb, so there wasn't a ton of science around it. Uh, one author, Ahmed, uh, in 2019 says, stems are used as an analgesic and anti-abortion agent traditionally. So that's, that's not in literature, um, and I don't agree with it uh, because we, we keep saying in Chinese medicine, we keep saying during pregnancy, this is, you can use this herb. So I don't think it's an anti-abortion abortion agent um, actually, maybe it is an anti-abortion agent. Maybe it prevents abortion. Yes, I'm sorry. I was kind of misinterpreting that. So it, it, it's good for pregnancy, in other words. So and it stops pain, analgesia. So that's good. Other than that, there really was a paucity. There wasn't much evidence in the scientific literature for this herb. There were several studies that looked at formulas with this herb as a constituent, but little about the herb alone. And I don't look at those formulas because you never know which herb is what in a formula. So I don't ever cover that in this section. Let's look at drug-herb interactions here. I did a thorough literature search as well as a search through my proprietary database. I just, anytime I find any drug-herb interaction stuff, so I pop it in a, a spreadsheet and database for myself. And there were no known drug-herb interactions or obvious potential risks for drug-herb interactions for this herb. Again, not surprising, the more obscure herbs, the less likely we're gonna find that information. We, and, I, and I often find that um, very commonly used or important herbs are well researched and have a lot of potential drug herb interactions, and, and that makes sense. You know, why why are we going to spend a lot of time, energy, and money investigating an herb uh, that is rarely used, relatively rarely used? So, all right. So, what are some of the concerns about this herb? Sabensky 
and his team note no cautions or contraindications for this herb other than what we talked about earlier in the commentary said that long-term use is probably not the greatest idea uh, similarly the botanical safety handbook does not have an entry for this herb i love this book it's put out by the american herbal producers association very well uh, researched and written by gardner and mcguffin their editors actually uh, and they, they, they usually have really good context for the safety aspects of these herbs, uh, more so than a lot of other literature that I read. And there just wasn't anything in there. Since it is considered a culinary herb and an actual food substance, uh, there should be little concern for ingestion of this. However, having said this, Bensky does have some concerns for using the leaf of this herb in patients with diabetes and in those with spleen and stomach cold, which... Again, if you remember back to our commentary, we said it can actually be used in spleen and stomach cold with there's a little bit of dampness. So I, it's, it's more concern. It's not a contraindication for use in spleen and stomach cold. Um, diabetes, it, it, it is said to increase blood sugar levels. Again, not a lot of science behind that. So keep that in mind. I would certainly, if I were going to give this to someone who's diabetic, I'd want to closely watch their, their sugar levels. But it wouldn't necessarily stop me from using this if I thought this was an appropriate herb for a diabetic patient. And then finally, uh, Gruenwald, which is the herbal supplements, uh, the physician's desk reference for herbs and supplements, does say that this herb is contraindicated in pregnancy because of some in vitro studies showing mutagenic effects. That's huge. Um, mutagenic means it, it mutates genes, and you don't want that, especially if you're pregnant. Um, they continue on to say this plant does not have any known health hazards when dosed properly, uh, and, they, uh, and they do discuss the potential for allergies with this herb, which is kind of mentioned in some of the other sources. So um, if we're really going to talk about concerns, the big concern for me is allergies. So like anything, especially plant plants, there's the potential for an allergy here. So if anyone gets any weird sort of allergic reactions, I would stop this as well. Um, Grunewald is the only one who says don't use it in pregnancy, even though it's traditionally used in pregnancy. So um, I, I find that that book in particular seems to be pretty heavy on the, if we don't know, let's say don't do it in pregnancy, um, rather than looking at a lot of studies. Though they did say there is some in vitro studies. Now, in vitro usually... Um, that means uh, in, in glass, so that it may or may not be pertained to humans. So in this case, I'm, I'm not worried about this in vitro study that might show some potential mutagenic effects. Um, I'm, I, nothing else out there is really supporting that. So I'm not worried about that uh, as a concern. I would feel pretty confident being able to use this herb in a, uh, in, in, in a pregnant, uh, situation pregnant woman with the pregnant woman. Okay. So that's our herb, Zisu gum. Appreciate you guys hanging in there. Thank you. There was an, an interesting discussion on, on Chinese language and some specific Chinese terms. And then this is, like I said, it's, it's, it's a different herb. It's not one of our most popular herbs out there, but I think it's an interesting herb and it, it has some very specific indications for us to use it. So that's really good. And so I thank you guys for hanging in there with me. I uh, just want to remind you, if you, when you buy from Amazon, please use the banner ad on our homepage at spurbsherbs.com. That would be helpful. I'll get a few pennies. Uh, I haven't had a few pennies for months now, so um, <laughs> it would be nice to have a few pennies coming in. If you like this podcast, please do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. We would really appreciate it. 
thank you very much for considering that. That'll help us get some more traction. We are, we're growing. Uh, what I love is every week I put out a new uh, Spur Observes. Uh, it, it, there's more listeners than the, the week before. So uh, that's what you want to see are those trend lines. So appreciate it. And as always, you can get in touch with me at drgreg at spurobserves.com or at our website at www.spurobserves.com. Thank you very much. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle. Timothy Dobbins. Roger Campbell.